pandemic came along. Some things slowed down, of course. Again, maybe you felt like you could catch your breath as many things kind of came to a screeching halt. But then there was the exhaustion of waiting to see what was going to happen next. And then month after month, more and more waiting. It was exhausting. And now, again, we might experience this roar that they're anticipating, much like the roaring 20s as things kind of opened up, as we moved on from kind of a major crisis into other aspects of life. And I tell you what, I bet the world is going to take off and get back to full speed in no time. And if you weren't exhausted before or exhausted by the pandemic, just wait. (laughs) Anybody feel exhausted? Anybody feel like tired? Anybody feel like sleep doesn't work anymore? (laughs) We are in need of rest more than any other people in history. Why can't we get it? We have to ask ourselves, why is our society so driven by overwork or sometimes even play? We are driven. Certainly technology has made work more accessible to all of us. We learned a lot about that in the pandemic, right, you realize that anywhere with a laptop and an internet connection or a mobile device could be where you work. That became exhausting for many. Um, People stay overworked. Some companies are actually not going back to their typical model of cubicles and office buildings. They're just saying, oh, yeah, be wherever you are. You can work from wherever you are. We've got you. (laughs) You can work. But there's also this, you know, it's not just technology or kind of how our world has become smaller over the years. There's also this cultural reason where we are for this drivenness, this overwork, the sense in which we do not rest. Um, throughout most of human history, people have found uh, their core sense of their identity within their family or within their cultural group, their community. But in our world, we're individualistic. It's all about us. We don't have an identity that's really related to our family or as in a powerful way as it has been throughout human history. But instead, it is based on our success, on our achievements and other kinds of things because we need to form some sense of identity. And if it's not with family, it will be in something else. And so most people have chosen this idea of success or achievement or something. It even starts to influence the way that parents parent. Parents are extremely concerned with their children's educations now. And usually it's not for their satisfaction or for their contribution even to society, but it actually has to do with the parents' achievement and their success, their identity. And again, then uh, children, students go on to buy into it. Maybe sometimes a high school student, maybe you've met a high school student who doesn't have a great work ethic. That happened. I was that kid. I didn't have a great work ethic. And yet, I was driven. I was striving. I was trying to form my identity in relationship to my friends. I was constantly trying to prove myself. I got good at guitar, I am certain, because I was trying to prove myself to someone. And again, if you measure your status, your identity, and achievement, rather than in your family or community, it leads to overwork. And we applaud the driven, those who are high achievers. I recently read a book called Essentialism, and it's about getting more out of life and work by doing less but better. Okay, that's what essentialism is about. 
But what I thought was interesting is there's a whole section dedicated to sleep. That has to mean that most people who would read the book will not understand how important sleep is, or if they do understand how important it is, they're simply not getting enough. Most people are underslept and doing nothing about it. They don't even think it's realistic to sleep as much as they say you need to sleep. Sleep is shamed. I have never been applauded for taking a nap. I have never overheard anyone saying about me or anyone else with great respect and admiration. Now there is a guy who not only sleeps eight hours a night, he occasionally naps. But did you know that wisdom, so wisdom is understanding how knowledge, information, fits together cohesively. And that's actually what happens when you sleep. What you do when you sleep is you connect the dots. And so uh, if you are underslept, you are less wise than the version of yourself who sleeps. Now, I get that in certain seasons of life, sleep is more difficult than others. Having young kids can be difficult. Maybe you're facing other kinds of health challenges, whatever it might be. Sleep might be hard to come by. But most people are not sleeping because of their deep need to prove themselves. It's actually an identity issue. Now, there is such thing as a lazy person. (laughs) The Bible calls them a sluggard. They exist out there. And most of us in our culture are worried about being perceived as a sluggard, as lazy. So we work hard. We starve ourselves of rest. And then we become so foggy mentally that we are just as ineffective as a slug. Don't be lazy, but stop shaming yourself and others for getting rest. Can we do that? Can we do that as a people? Stop shaming sleep. Stop shaming rest. If we were all a little more well-rested, we'd soon see who the real sluggards are. It's true. And then, with grace, we'd be able to help them find greater purpose and meaning in their work. And as important as sleep is, it won't fix your weariness. As we'll see from the text today, there is more than one kind of rest. We need deep rest in our souls before sleep will be able to restore us. So the Sabbath, one day in a week, set aside, was God's prescription for people to get deep rest on a weekly basis to have that reminder. Instead of work, there is worship. Now, yes, we can live a life where we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That is worship. We can do that continually. But there is this sense in which we need to set aside work for worship, not set aside work for recreation, which is what I think most people do. So, Sabbath exchanges work for worship, not work for recreation. Now, we've said that the author of Hebrews is out to accomplish two things. First, to say that Jesus is superior and to warn people to continue to follow Jesus despite life's difficult circumstances. And he outlines how Jesus is superior 
I think, in four different ways. First, he's superior to the angels in bringing God's message as the Son instead of just messengers sent. And it's not just in parts or pieces, but it's the complete, the final word of God. He's also superior to Moses uh, and his leadership as a deliverer from you know, Egypt into the promised land. He's superior to all other priests and the whole priestly system, as well as superior in that his sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice versus the whole um, need for ongoing animal sacrifices. Now, we've already talked about his message is superior uh, in the messages that we've done already in this series, but now we're entering into this section talking about Moses being, uh, or Moses as the deliverer, deliverer and how Jesus is superior to that. And we're looking at actually the whole chunk of chapter 3 and chapter 4, but we're only picking up in chapter 4 for this particular Sunday. So if you haven't read chapter 3 of Hebrews, that can be homework for you. Now, the people of Israel, again, kind of picking up from the themes in chapter 3, the people of Israel were miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they set out for the promised land. But it's not too long into the journey that you realize that you can take the slave out of Egypt, but you can't take the slavery out of the slave so easily. They begin to grumble and complain. They refuse to put their faith in God. A whole generation dies in the desert due to their unbelief. But even those who actually marched into the promised land to take hold of it were later warned about missing out on God's rest. That's what Psalm 95 is all about, which the author of Hebrews is quoting. That's why he keeps referencing this idea of rest. Now, rest, again, because of our culture, we don't even really hear it as a threat. We're so used to the idea of being denied rest, being denied sleep, being weary constantly, that this threat, God is angry at unbelieving people, and the biggest threat he can come up with is you don't get to rest. We, we don't hardly have a, a perspective on it. But it is actually, again, opposed to slavery, You were slaves in Egypt, and now you can be at rest. It is peace. It is everything that's good about what we hope for in heaven. Now, in this uh, passage, we see the author use rest in kind of four different ways. We're going to try to outline those, hopefully to help us give perspective on how to take hold of rest in all of its (laughs) um, different dimensions. So first, there is the promised land to the Israelite people. As rest, they would receive rest when they got to the promised land. Then the author also mentions God's rest in creation. He created the whole world, and on the seventh day, he rested. And then we have this idea that he's making a comparison between Moses and Jesus. And so, if the promised land that Moses was leading his people to, the promised land that Jesus is leading his people to, must be, again, that much greater. That must be ultimately heaven, the kingdom of heaven, eternally living and existing where God is in his rule and reign. And the other way that we see rest used here in this particular part of the Bible is the gospel as a means to enter heaven's rest now. Okay, so let's look at those four things. The promised land was going to be rest. So rest from slavery. Slaves have to work all of the time. At a moment's notice, they are told what to do and they must, or there are consequences. 
Okay, so they would have also, the journey was difficult too. So when they finally got to the promised land, the slavery was supposed to be done with, the journeying, the wandering was supposed to be done with. There was supposed to be the sense of physical and social rest. They had been waiting ages for the promised land. The promise was over 500 years old. The promise was to Abraham. But again, it's not until much later that finally this land is given to them. But even then, the rest is incomplete or else we would have no Psalm 95, which comes again later. We often do this where we look forward to something in the future like it is a promised land. So when I graduate, then it'll all really be happening for me. When I get that job, when I get the raise, when I finally get married, when we have kids, when the kids are older, (laughs) when the kids move out, uh, when I retire then I'll be able... And on and on we kind of create these promised lands, these moments, these markers in our lives that when we get there, we'll have rest. There's lots of others. I'm sure some came to mind for you. But every time we enter that promised land, we realize it doesn't give us the satisfaction that we had hoped for. So again, remember, this, this, even the Sabbath commandment Again, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment was given in light of their slavery in Egypt. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. See, when the Lord commands us to rest, It's the same thing as commanding us not to be slaves any longer. He makes a way for us to be free. Why would we continue to live as slaves? And ultimately, again, anyone who overworks, who will not rest, who is driven by this identity issue, they, you know, this idea that they need to prove themselves, they are just demonstrating that they are a slave. Rest is a declaration of freedom. So, again, the Sabbath idea, taking a day off, that's a declaration of freedom. When you rest, you say, I'm not just a cog in the machine. I'm not a slave to materialism or to the identity system in the world. Not even in family, because that's actually just a different one. We're not talking about the negative aspects of defining yourself only by your family or your community or your culture. But that's also something that's less than defining your identity in God and who he has made you, who he's called you to be. So yes, rest is a declaration of freedom. Rest is a revolution. Okay? So again, that's the idea of promised land and rest. But then the author also mentions uh, God's rest at the beginning of time. He mentions in creation. Again, you have six days of all this creating is happening and then the seventh day of resting. Now, God doesn't need to rest like we do. We get tired from nearly anything we do, right? Like if we had a competition to see who could do the most push-ups, eventually, it doesn't matter how many you could do, you would stop because you were tired. You couldn't do any more. We need to stop and rest. Running, anything, you know, all of the ways that we test, you know, athleticism eventually comes to the point where the person is too tired to do any more or to lift any more or whatever it might be. Okay, so But God is not like that. That's how we are. We are weak and frail and those kind of things. So why does God need rest? God rested because he was pleased. 
He was satisfied with what he had done. He was so satisfied that there would be no more days of creation. He said that it was good. He created, there it was, and now there was to be rest. In the end, work must be rested from and then enjoyed. Now, all throughout this section as well, the author is playing with um, past, present, and future tense. Um, God has rested, but again, we read from other scriptures throughout the Bible, Jesus mentions that he's always at his work because his father is always at his work. God is still active in the world. When we get to look forward to the kingdom of heaven, or we get to look forward to the kingdom of heaven as uh, this rest of being satisfied that it is good, the work is done, and we just get to enjoy, just like God did. He was satisfied, and he thought there's no more, there's not going to be any other days of creation to create other kinds of things. This is it. This is creation. This is what it is. So, God's rest is referenced. And that we can enter that kind of rest, that all of the work can be done. And again, it says there in the, in the verses we read that when we enter God's rest, even our works are done. So there's the first two. Again, God's, or the promised land as rest. God's rest as the, at the beginning of time being like the rest that is actually coming for all of us. And it's this idea that, again, rest is like Heaven, the kingdom of heaven in the future. And, you know, this idea that there remains a Sabbath rest, that that is heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes along and preaches about the kingdom of heaven and invites everyone to join him in paradise by putting their faith in him, the way, the truth, and the life. Again, the rest we are invited to. We are invited to end our work, to live life in the seventh day of creation somehow in the future. But how do we take hold of that kind of rest? um, It is through the rest that comes from the gospel. That's kind of the fourth um, way that the author uses rest. He talks about believing the gospel is rest. It's a way to take hold of heaven now. And again, he, he references Joshua, again, going back to those who came out of slavery but that went into the promised land. Uh, and this is from verse 8. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later. But another day, there, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So Joshua got them into the promised land. But yet, Psalm 95, which comes much later in their history, still speaks this need um, to enter into even a deeper kind of rest. So, this rest lays before us, and it can only be found by believing the gospel. That is having a faith that leads to obedience. Because again, the people that this author was writing to, the audience, they did believe at first, but now we're dangerously wandering away from their faith. And so he's trying to encourage them to stay the course. He's saying, faith once is perhaps not worth much at all. Again, much like the people who left from Egypt but never got to enter the promised land. In fact, you see God declaring an oath in his anger, saying, you'll never have rest because you won't believe in me. You won't put your trust in me. So having a faith that leads to obedience 
is the way that we take hold of this rest. The gospel reminds us, of course, that it's not about our work at all. Jesus lives the life that we should have lived. And then he dies the death that we should have died. And then he offers us his righteousness so that we can be joint heirs with him. He does the work and invites us to enter the rest. That's what the gospel is. We enter God's rest daily by believing the, God, by believing the gospel. Now, all throughout this section, he keeps quoting and using the word from the scriptures, today. Now, the Sabbath was a weekly ritual in which you would exchange your work for rest, for worship. And yet this author is trying to make the point home that, like, well, even that weekly is not enough. This is something that daily you need to enter into the gospel, that your faith needs to become obedient to the word of God daily, today, while it's called today. It doesn't matter at what point in the day it is, wherever you are, it's today. You're not living in yesterday or in tomorrow, it's today. There's an urgency in the sense in which we need to respond with faith to God, to be sensitive to his voice. That word today is significant. So again, there's four kinds of rests all trying to draw us to something. There was the promised land, the original promised land, Moses leading the people of uh, Israel into it. They got there, but it wasn't complete. There was still a rest that they needed. And so he talks about God's rest in creation, that there was a finality to it, that all of the work was done, and that finally you could rest in that seventh day of creation, the ultimate rest. And that is the kingdom of heaven, a place to be at rest. Again, by contrast, not a slave, but instead someone that is at rest in their identity, in their work, and all of those other kinds of things. And again, nothing, there's not that there's anything wrong with work. We've talked about it in the past, how about your work can be like worship. What you can do, you can offer to God like he is your boss. That can be a beautiful, wonderful thing, but it really comes down to that inner motivation of your heart, which we're going to see here in just a moment, that that can make all of the difference, whether or not your work is you striving and you being enslaved to something, or if it is through freedom and rest that you're actually able to make a contribution to um, your world, to your family, your friends, and to society. Okay, so we can see that the gospel makes it easy for us to enter rest. You know, we see that, again, all of, it's not our work, it's Jesus' work. He does the work, and we get our, just an invitation. And through faith, we can be obedient in that and enter the gospel. We see how that's extremely easy. Actually, for most people, it's uncomfortably easy how easy it is to become a Christian, to enter into that relationship with God. But then we have verse 12 and 13. And they also show us that it's painful and violent. See, again, and this comes back to that idea that you can take the slave out of Egypt, but it's harder to take the slavery out of the slave. Does that make sense? That's a process, I believe, that's often referred to as sanctification, becoming a holy people. So again, let's read verses 12 and 13 just to remind you, and we'll continue on with a few more thoughts. Verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered 
and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Now, I've heard this sometimes referenced as, you know, oh, this is, this is God, this is the great physician. He's got his scalpel tools out. He's doing surgery on you. It's going to be gentle. But that's kind of not what the imagery really brings to mind. I think that this is a violent, this is a war sword almost, right? It's, it's painful. It's violent. And yet there is something to the fact that, again, it is God's work in our lives through his word. So there's this sword imagery that suddenly comes to mind. Well, you know, what about all this? Yeah, come rest. You know, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come and rest, and I'm going to get my double-edged sword. It seems like it's flipping to a totally different gear. It seems a bit surprising. And also this idea, again, enter rest. Come on, enter rest. Please do that. And then you get this idea of like, okay, so everything is uncovered. That really means naked. Not with, with not a garment on. And the other idea of being laid bare, it's actually kind of a word that means like if there was an animal sacrifice and you're pulling the head back to expose the neck, that is laid bare. And even uh, anybody who's uh, kind of gone through the Lord of the Rings books or trilogy or whatever it is, there's Sauron, there's the all-seeing eye. And he's the, again, he's the villain in that particular story. And yet you see here imagery that almost seems to suggest that that's kind of what God is like. He has all-seeing eyes wherever you are and whatever is going on. He sees through, okay, and this would, again, for this Hebrew audience, this would have brought up the imagery of Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember the phrase that it says about them? They were naked and unashamed. And yet, from that point forward, after sin, everyone has been naked and ashamed. And this would have come up for them. Again, they go looking for garments. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, he doesn't fall for that. (laughs) All of your efforts to cover yourself are useless. It doesn't matter how much you achieve in your life, how successful you are, he knows what kind of deep down we know that we are naked and shameful, that we are broken and sinful. And unless we come to him, again, and this is that difficult part, it's like, well, we can enter rest just because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, and he just invites us in. And just like that, you know, earlier in the very first part of uh, chapter four, it says we get to enter that rest, believing, bang, there it is. We, We are able to take hold of that rest. And yet, we come to him, in so many ways, naked, having nothing else to offer but ourselves. And we have to go into a place of complete and total surrender, exposing our necks to him, knowing that we deserve death, that we're sinful. And when we can come to that point, we can actually begin to enter rest. Again, it's painful and violent. It's this work of sanctification in our lives. Okay, so Adam and Eve sinned in this way. They were ashamed, and we are like that, and we try to compensate in so many different ways. Again, if I'm successful, if I'm wealthy, if I'm well-connected, if I'm well-liked, if I had a, a fantastic spouse, if my kids do well in school, if they become successful, then maybe no one will notice my inner nakedness. But again, I have to admit, I often thought it was such a strange response. 
when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized that they're sinners. You know, their eyes are kind of opened, and immediately they think, we need some clothes. Doesn't that seem kind of like a silly response? But imagine going from being naked and unashamed to naked and sinful and in shame. Again, I don't think our efforts are any less silly. Really, what can we offer to him? Yes, so we have this uh, idea that now we who have believed enter the rest, and let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. So again, it's this process. um, Once we believe that we move into sanctification where we invite the Holy Spirit, God to come, we're vulnerable, we're surrendered to him, and he begins to do that work in our lives. So again, Christians realize they have nothing to bring. Uh, Religious people are always... um, you know, regardless of kind of what religion or faith system you kind of come from, religious people are always repenting of their sins. Everybody, you know, in those kind of systems know they sin. But only in Christianity do you find people who also repent of their own self-righteousness and their good works. And they say, I really have nothing to offer God. I just receive his incredible grace in my life. Now, maybe you're hearing all of this, this idea that Jesus wants to come to you and by his perfect sacrifice, give you access to eternal, abundant life and rest to find peace and wholeness. Maybe you're hearing that and you're feeling like you want to respond in some way. I believe that's the Holy Spirit working in your life and drawing you towards him. That's God speaking to you. If you want to make that kind of commitment this morning, if you want to choose to follow him and enter into his rest, you can do that right now. Let's pray a prayer together. Very simple. We can say, Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a simple prayer. You could pray that prayer any time in your faith journey. But if you've made that commitment to Christ for the first time, we would love to hear about it. Let us know in the comments if you're joining us online or come and pray with someone at the end of the service if you're here this morning. Okay, as we come to a close, I'll invite the worship team to come back. We're going to do one more song here this morning. Sleep won't give you rest until you have that deep inner satisfaction and rest. No amount of vacations can give you the rest you need if you don't have that inner rest. And that comes from believing the gospel. And I think the author of Hebrews would encourage us to put our faith into practice every day. Go to his word every day. Remind yourself of his truth every day. The Sabbath is an intentional weekly repetition reminding us that we are more than our work. Again, so long as it is called today, do it daily, but do it weekly. Don't miss church. <laughs> Have church somewhere else every once in a while, but don't miss it. Exchange one day of work for a day of worship. We must quiet the inner need to prove ourselves. We've got to daily soften our hearts. That is, I believe, going to the word of God and allowing him to speak his truth over us so that our identities can be reformed in terms of what he says about us, rather than us being enslaved to some other master. Embrace, 
the pain and violence of entering that rest. Make every effort, I think that is what I want to say, make every effort. You have all kinds of thoughts and attitudes within your heart, and they will always be leading you back to Egypt. (laughs) But remember that he wants to bring you out of that. That's why he gives you a command that says, rest. If you want to find that deep rest, it's going to take that step of faith every day. As we come to our close, again, just practical steps. Go to church or have church somewhere else. Worship daily. Go to his voice, the word, and surrender to him. Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do come to us and you are a greater deliverer You don't take us to a promised land that ends up not actually providing um, the full part of the promise, but you want to give us deep rest, so much so that sleep even works on us, and we can find joy in this life. Father, help us to rest from all of the ways that we would try to prove ourselves or cover our own selves, proving that we're not sinful, not shameful, all of those kind of things, that we can achieve it, we can be successful. However we would do that, Father, would you help us to have the courage to go deep and to deal with those things, to allow your word to go deep into our lives, to to transform us. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help people just to uh, remember it Sunday, to take an opportunity to worship you, to lay down their busyness and work and other things, not just for recreation, though that's good too, but to lay it down for an opportunity to worship. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us all on our journey of faith. Uh, We're each at different places, but I pray that by your spirit, you'd help us to take our next step of obedience. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here uh, at our service. We're glad that you were able to be with us. We're going to sing one more song of worship, and then we'll see you all next week.